Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Let me begin today's podcast by wishing all of my fellow Jewish listeners a happy new year for those non-Jewish listeners. You may not know that today is Rosh Hashanah, which is Jewish New Year's. We are now celebrating the year 5,778 on the Hebrew calendar. And, you know, for most of those years, gold has, in fact, been money. And I know the crypto crowd doesn't want to admit this, but I think when the Gregorian calendar gets to the same date, you know, now it's 2017, on that calendar. But when that calendar, when we ring in 5,778, gold will still be money. Who knows if anybody will even remember uh, Bitcoin or any of these cryptocurrencies that existed for a relative nanosecond in the history of time. But I don't know. I mean, maybe they'll write a new chapter in that book, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. And by the way, if you own some Bitcoins, get a copy of that book and read it because it is very applicable to what's going on now. But hey, more about that later. I mean, I'm going to be talking about uh, Bitcoin again at the end of the podcast, because I am you know, here in Aspen for this conference. For those of you who have been wondering or concerned about me, I did make it out of Puerto Rico just before Maria arrived, so probably uh, quite a few hours. I got out on um, Tuesday afternoon, I think my flight, which was delayed, left at five o'clock. Obviously, if I was still in Puerto Rico, I could not be recording this podcast because there is no internet there. There's basically no power there. There's no cell phones. There's no water, uh, at least not running out of people's faucets. There's lots of water where it's not supposed to be, like in the streets. 
and in people's houses. I mean, it is a complete uh, disaster, uh, the hurricane, although I guess it could have been worse. I mean, it was pretty damn bad, but the hurricane did slow a bit to a Category 4. I mean, it was barely uh, beneath the Category 5, but hey, I mean, it could have been a 5. It was a 4, and the 4 did enough damage. Fortunately, when the hurricane moved across the island, it entered Puerto Rico on the, the southeast, and then it moved in a northwest direction across Puerto Rico. And when it did that, it had to go over the mountains in Puerto Rico. A lot of these Caribbean islands are flat. And so the hurricanes just tear those things apart. But in Puerto Rico, those mountains, uh, you know, really broke up the eye quite a bit and did some damage. And so by the time uh, the hurricane left Puerto Rico, it was down to a two. So the north side of the island, which is the side where I am, the winds were not as strong by the time uh, the eye got there. So that probably helped out a little bit, uh, but it was still pretty bad. Now, where I live, uh, my section of Dorado happens to be about 40 uh, feet above sea level. So I think we're okay on the flooding, but a good portion of the island, of course, has been flooded because a lot of the rivers in Puerto Rico overflowed. And, you know, that's probably doing more damage, the water from the flooding than the wind, even though the d wind did a lot of damage. But of course, when you have a situation like Puerto Rico, where the infrastructure is already so bad, you know, this thing really topples it. And so uh, this is a major, major disaster. Remember, I was uh, optimistic before about the short run for Puerto Rico because we came out of Irma uh, relatively in good shape compared to a lot of other islands. And that was going to be a boom for uh, Puerto Rican tourism because they were going to pick up the slack, a lot of extra hotel space relative to the, the hotels that are off the market. Obviously, now Puerto Rico in the same position. And so it's going to be some other islands that might benefit now even more from increased tourism. But I haven't been able to really talk to anybody uh, in my area. I was able to speak to one employee in uh, who stayed in San Juan because AT&T was working a little bit in San Juan, pretty much no place else, uh, no uh, service in Dorado. Nobody can really drive around. Uh, but from little I heard, I think my properties are fine. Uh, no windows broke. Uh, I don't think there's any structural damage. I don't think we have any flooding. I think it's mainly the landscaping that's probably uh, in disarray. Uh, there may be a few things. I got solar panels on my roof. I don't know. I imagine maybe some of them flew off. I mean, I have no idea. Uh, but it's a lot worse for a lot of other people on the island. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real disaster. You know, when I heard the governor, he gets on television and he's like, we will rebuild, right? He's very confident. We will rebuild. And all I can think of, I know, but with what money? Puerto Rico is broke. Right. Thanks to the government. I mean, maybe not thanks to the current governor. He wasn't there. Uh, but previous administrations bankrupted Puerto Rico. They borrowed all this money when the sun was shining. So not only do they have nothing saved for a rainy day, they have no borrowing capacity for a rainy day. If Puerto Rico hadn't borrowed so much money in the past while it was sunny just to overpay all the government workers they don't need, they would have a better balance sheet. They could afford to go out and sell bonds now to pay to rebuild. And of course, had they kept their infrastructure in better position, had they spent money wisely, which is a pretty difficult thing for any politician to do, maybe had they privatized sooner, had there been a private power company, the, the power infrastructure would be in much better shape. And so it would be damaged by the hurricane, but not to the point where power is out for six months. Maybe this would be a good time to privatize. Obviously, 
the money they could get by privatizing the power company now is not going to be as good. But obviously, because now the power company has to spend a lot of money to rebuild what's been destroyed. Hopefully they can build something better. You know, the all the power in Puerto Rico, you know, half of it comes from gas, oil. They burn oil. I mean, very inefficient, especially when you have to import all that oil on U.S. flagged ships, thanks to the Jones Act. So there's a lot of ways to, uh, you know, repair the power grid and make it more efficient. But it's probably not something that government is ever going to do. But when the governor was talking about rebuilding, I know where the money's coming from. It's coming from Washington, D.C., which means it's coming from China or it's coming from the Federal Reserve, right? Because the U.S. government is also broke, right? We owe a lot of money. The only difference is we've got a printing press and Puerto Rico doesn't. So we can print up money that Puerto Rico can't or people are still willing to loan us money even though they're not willing to loan Puerto Rico money, even though on paper, America is actually broke, more in debt than is Puerto Rico. But I'm sure this is going to be a humanitarian crisis now. There's going to have to be tens of billions of dollars given to Puerto Rico, not loaned. There's no way they could pay it back. They're already broke. So it has to be just disaster relief. It has to be a grant, a gift. It can't be some kind of low interest rate loan. They can't afford that. I mean, even 0% interest rates they can't afford because they can't pay back the principal. So it's got to be massive uh, federal funds just, you know, showered on Puerto Rico. And I'm sure it's going to happen. I mean, now that it's a humanitarian crisis of this proportion, it's not about a bailout because, you know, they have too much debt. It's now the hurricane. It's Maria. Um, and, and so they're, they're going to end up getting a bunch of money. But, you know, what's going to happen when the U.S. government finally runs out of capacity uh, to to borrow and print. I mean, that's what's coming. You know, I was reading this article about Toys R Us bankruptcy. And of course, I immediately start thinking, hey, that's another great example of the United States, right? Toys R Us, because Toys R Us finally went bankrupt. I think it's now the second biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history. And one of the reasons that Toys R Us has been able to survive these last few years is because of financing from its vendors, companies like Hasbro and Mattel, they, you know, they wanted to keep Toys R Us going because that was about 9, 10% of their sales. And it was a big brick and mortar store. They needed to have their toys in these stores, even just as a showroom, a free showroom, because people can go in there, they can see what Toys R Us was selling, and then they can go on their cell phones and buy it on Amazon cheaper. But at least they can go into a Toys R Us and let's see what there was before they went and bought it cheaper on Amazon. But, you know, they were giving them good terms of financing and allowing them, you know, buy now, pay later. But as as things started to heat up, as the credit ratings were going down and people started to worry about the solvency, then it just it accelerated and everything just fell apart quickly. Because, I mean, this was a shocker. The bonds collapsed. I mean, all of a sudden, boom, this is going to happen to America one day. I mean, it's the same thing. The world vendor finances us, right? They lend us money so we can buy their stuff. And they're afraid that if they start let, stop lending us money, if they let the dollar tank, then we can't buy their stuff anymore. But at some point, they're going to realize it doesn't matter if they buy, we buy their stuff because we're not buying anything. We're giving it to them. So just like Hasbro and Mattel figured out that it doesn't make sense to finance uh, uh, Toys R Us anymore, China, the rest of Southeast Asia, South America, wherever it is, they're going to decide, you know what? It doesn't make any sense to keep vendor financing in the United States. And that's it. That's it. The dollar's toast. You know, if you look, too, at what's going on with the dollar, the dollar did get a, a bit of a bounce. And I'm going to talk about Janet Yellen and, and, and what she said about quantitative tightening and interest rate hikes in a bit. But just to finish this thought, 
you know, the dollar got a bit of a bounce, but very little uh, in the way of upward trajectory, despite the, the supposed hawkishness and the way the markets are, are, are greeting what Janet Yellen says. So the, the dollar is already falling, but it, it's not collapsing yet. I mean, it's falling, but people are still not completely uh, aware. There's just not enough bearishness yet in the dollar. Obviously, if there was, the price of gold would be taken off. Uh, but we're not too far away from that point. And when the dollar starts to fall next time, there's going to be no stopping it. Because remember, the last time when the dollar was falling in you know 2011, let's say, when the Fed was doing QE2 and you know it really looked like this was going to be the end, right? Because gold had gone up to 1,900. People were worried about the dollar, correctly so. Uh, and the dollar was falling. What happened was you had this currency war. Remember the currency wars? That was when all these foreign governments were so worried that their currencies were rising against the dollar that they started printing all their own money to buy up dollars to prevent their currencies from falling. And that's really what put the bottom in the dollar. It was all the support from our vendors trying to keep us in business, trying to preserve their ability to continue to sell products to broke Americans who can't really afford to buy them. And so they put in the bottom. But then when everybody believed that the Fed's policy worked, that's when the dollar started to rise on its own. And in fact, it created problems for those countries that had fought that currency war. But the next time the dollar falls, that isn't going to happen. We're not going to have currency World War II. You know, I was talking to a, a another client, soon to be ex-client, just yesterday. And this is a guy that had been with me for a number of years. I forget how many, maybe about five, six years. And not all of them in a managed account. I mean, he had a brokerage account that he switched over to managed. And uh, I talked to him because he had told his broker that he had decided to close his account. He was going to go to another broker and they were just going to, you know, invest in a more traditional strategy, which is U.S. stocks and bonds or probably mainly U.S. stocks. And and so when I called the guy up, you know, he was like, you know, Peter, I really, you know, I, I, I believed you. I was I really was on board. I believe what you were saying. I sent you this money and, you know, it's been long enough and I haven't made any money. I mean, his account was a little ahead, I think, of where he started. But, you know, nothing compared to obviously what he would have made had he just bought the NASDAQ or the S&P. Right. And he's like, look, you know, I guess you were wrong. And I've, you know, given it enough time. And so I'm just going to we're just going to go with a, 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 you know, with another broker. And we're just going to get into the U.S. stock market. And I had to remind him, I said, look, I'm not wrong. There's no, there, I have, there's nothing I've been wrong about. The only thing is that the dollar hasn't collapsed yet. But it's going to. I said, if you look at everything that I said, everything that I wrote, I said that when we had the financial crisis, the Fed was going to respond to it by printing all this money, trying to reflate the bubble, right? And they were going to create a dollar crisis that the consequence of the financial crisis and the bursting of the housing bubble was going to be a dollar crisis that was going to be the result of the policies that the Fed was going to implement in the aftermath of that crisis. So I knew about the crisis in advance, and I knew exactly what the government was going to do and the Federal Reserve was going to do as a result of the crisis, and I knew what the result of that was going to be. The only thing that we haven't had is the final, right? The fat lady hasn't sung in this opera. We haven't had the dollar crash. Now, why haven't we? Well, I don't know. You know, the dollar rallied instead of went down. But that doesn't mean it's not going to go down. It just means that before it crashes, it's going up, right? It's like it's just like a head fake. It's just like a giant counter move 
just to sucker people out, like my client, right, who's now suckered out of the trade. He's holding a winning hand and he's throwing it away. He's being bluffed out of this game because he's looking backwards at the Dow going up and thinks, well, you know, I've missed out on these gains. I don't want to miss out on any more. You know, I mean, the Dow's at 22,000 and now he wants to buy. And again, this is not just this client. I'm telling you, I've got lots of clients every day that want to close out their accounts to buy U.S. stocks. This was never happening. I mean, I had clients closing out their accounts early last year to go to cash. They didn't want to buy U.S. stocks. They didn't want to buy any stocks. They just were, you know, had been losing money and they just wanted to go to cash. And I was actually more successful in convincing people to stay back then, to hold on than I am now. In fact, some of the same people who wanted to go to cash back then and I convinced them to stay in the strategy, they're the same people who are now saying, you know, I want to close again, even though maybe they're up 30, 40 percent since those conversations. But now they don't want to go to cash. Now they want to buy U.S. stocks which actually says even more about the bubble in the stock market than it does about my strategy that so many people that were so skeptical about U.S. stocks, you know, while they were tripling are now, you know, so excited about buying them. And even when I say, but wait a minute, we, your account has beaten the U.S. stock market this year and it's beaten the U.S. stock market last year. No, no, no. They just want to go back over the last five years. And say, but, it ha- you know, but I haven't made money. Yes, you haven't made money yet. Wait over the next few years. It might make the whole thing worthwhile Right, all the returns end up being backloaded because back then the dollar was going up. We can't make money when the dollar is going up in a foreign portfolio, but we're going to make money hand over fist when the dollar goes down. So the question is, where's the dollar going to go from here? It's down this year. This is the first down year. What's it going to do next year? What's it going to do year after that? You know, there's a, an expression in accounting about sunk costs being irrelevant. Right, if you spend money on something in the past but you're making a decision today. What you spent is irrelevant to today's market. You have to make a decision uh, based on the information you have now. You can't just dwell on money that's already been spent because it's been spent. You can't do anything about that. So you have to make a new decision. And the fact that the, the returns on foreign stocks and gold stocks haven't been as good as the U.S. stock market over the last five years means nothing with respect to what's going to happen over the next five years. In fact, if anything, it probably means that you're better off in foreign stocks because they're cheaper. And that the U.S. stock market is expensive. But no, no. I mean, people are just making this mistake. And to me, again, you know, it's like like a sports analogy. You get a, a running back and, you know, he wants to go right. So what does he do? He goes left first. He jukes to the left before he goes right. Right. Because he wants a defender to go the other way or the quarterback. If he wants to throw the ball downfield, he fakes the handoff. Right. The running back pretends he's got the ball. He wants to sell the defense on the run and he pretends he's got it and he got his arms and he, and he and he puts his head down and he runs up he's hoping to draw defenders in so the quarterback has a better chance to complete the pass the markets are the same thing yes the dollar went up before it crashes big deal right now it's just going to be a more spectacular crash now it's going to fall from a higher level and because we had such a long period of time between the government's doing the wrong thing QE1 2 and 3 0% interest rates because so much time has passed the bubble has gotten so much bigger. The problems have gotten so much worse. I mean, you know, I have never felt more confident in, in this trade. And I have never been more confident about how much money I'm going to make or anyone following my advice is going to make when this thing bursts. I mean, this is going to be, I think, the biggest payoff from anything you could do. Yet it's going to make it worth the wait. The fact that you have to wait several years for a massive payoff. I'd rather do that than just have a paper profit that I never take and then watch it all evaporate. That's not going to do you any good. But if you wait long enough and then you get paid for being right and being patient, that's victory. 
The problem is when people snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and they throw in the towel now, even when there's, it's so obvious to me what's happened, which you know it brings me to Janet Yellen because the Fed is in this box. And I know they're in this box. They box themselves in because they've kept rates so low for so long. They've allowed so much debt to accumulate. It's impossible to allow interest rates to rise, but they can't admit that. So they have to pretend, they have to talk as if everything's going to be fine. They're going to be able to normalize rates. They're going to be able to shrink their balance sheet. None of this is possible. And it's only a question of time before figured out. Just like it's only a question of time until the creditors for Toys R Us figured it out. And then, boom, Toys R Us bankrupt overnight, right? Puerto Rico, already bankrupt. Puerto Rico can't do anything to help itself now. I mean, if if it wasn't for money, if money wasn't going to come to Puerto Rico from the United States, what would they do? I mean, that would be the end of the island because they didn't save. They squandered their money. They ran up big debts. America has done the same thing. And it's going to meet a different fate because there's no bailout for America. So everybody is watching Janet Yellen this week. The Federal Reserve meets. They didn't raise interest rates, right? Nobody expected them to raise rates. But Yellen did offer a more optimistic uh, assessment, I think, on the economy than most people were expecting. In fact, she shrugged off all these hurricanes. Just, ah, it's not going to hurt the economy. No big deal. And didn't mention about all the extra money that would have to be borrowed to, to repair all this destroyed infrastructure. She's not worried at all about the impact of the hurricanes on the economy. And based on how upbeat she was, the markets are now more convinced that we're going to get another rate hike between now and the end of the year, most likely December. And I think the markets had already started to price out a December rate hike. And now they're actually starting to price it back in based on what Janet Yellen said. But what everybody was waiting for was the plan on quantitative tightening, although they're not calling it quantitative tightening. I guess they're afraid to use that language, but they're just talking about winding down their balance sheet. And Janet Yellen did say that they will begin, I forget what it was in, maybe it was in October they're going to begin, or November, I, for, I think November. And what they're going to do is they're, they're going to not roll over $10 billion per month. And I think it's, was it maybe $6 billion treasuries, $4 billion mortgage backs, I'm not 100% sure, but the total was $10 billion that they're not going to roll over. So they're going to allow their balance sheet, not necessarily to wind down. Because remember, if they earn $15 billion of interest, they're still going to reinvest five, right? So it's possible that even though they are doing this taper, right, and they're allowing uh, $10 billion of, uh, you know, to shrink, that the, the balance sheet could still be getting bigger. And in fact, you know, if interest rates really move up, then, you know, obviously, that's not even be close. And of course, if they stay at $10 billion a month, I mean, it's going to take forever uh, to actually shrink the balance sheet, which of course they won't do because long before we get to forever, we're going to get to the next recession and then they're going to have to crank up the balance sheet. But again, the Fed said they'll start at $10 billion a month. And at some point, based on the economic data, so this is where the data dependency comes in, they'll, 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 they'll crank it up until they eventually get to a maximum of $50 billion a month. So they're saying that the most we'll ever do in one month is $50 billion. But we're going to start at 10 and we're going to be data dependent on the way up. Now, I don't believe they'll ever do more than 10 They may, in fact, start at 10 because they said they would start, and it's only in a couple months, so they will probably start and do the 10 uh, But I don't think they'll ever get above it. I think that's all they're going to do. Now, the other thing that Yellen said, though, and this is what kind of surprised the markets a little bit, but it's really much ado about nothing, 
Yellen said that they're not going to look at the economy as far as should they stop doing it, that they're going to keep doing 10 billion a month, right? They're going to allow 10 billion of, uh, of interest per month not to be reinvested, right? And they're going to continue to do this kind of regardless of what's happening in the economy, that what they're going to do if the economy is weakening is cut rates. So the first thing they're going to do is cut rates and they're going to continue this policy and they're not going to turn that back or maybe go to another round of quantitative easing until they've already lowered rates pretty much back to zero again, which is what they did before. Remember, they didn't do quantitative easing until they first ran out of options on lowering rates. So they went to zero and then they used quantitative easing to create negative rates. And what the Fed basically said is that's what they're going to do again. So most people had assumed that if they started this quantitative tightening program and if the economy started to weaken, they would taper that back or, or call that off for a while and then see what happens. But the Fed says, no, if we get worried, the first thing we're going to do is cut interest rates before we, we get into that. And so what it's like, you know, like LIFO, FIFO, whatever it is, I mean, it's, it makes no difference. Yet for some reason that was interpreted as being more hawkish or more bullish because it wasn't what they expected. But it really isn't any more uh, hawkish than, than if you thought that they were going to go the other way. I don't even know if it makes a difference how they do it, but I think things are going to fall apart so quickly, it's not even going to matter. I mean, maybe they cut rates because how quickly are they going to cut them? They'll probably go to zero in one cut if all of a sudden things turn around. I mean, it's not like they're that far above zero anyway. Even if they raise them again in December, they're still one and a quarter to one and a half. So they don't have a lot of room before they're doing quantitative easing all over again. But the markets believe this, you know, they bid the dollar up, didn't rally much that much. It got up to about 92.50, uh, which is still a pretty low uh, level for the dollar index. And then today it gave back uh, a nice chunk of those gains and it closed back at 92.17. So not even a two day rise in the dollar. And we're very, you know, close to the lows, despite now expectations for a, a, a quicker uh, hike in interest rates that a more hawkish uh, a Fed, that rates may rise a little bit more next year. Despite all this optimism, the dollar can barely rise. It shows you how weak it is. Now, gold did sell off. Yesterday, it got back below 1300 And then in a general like sell-off of all metals, I mean, copper, industrial metals, silver, I mean, all the metals were selling off today. And so gold uh, was one of them. And gold was down another 10 bucks. So now we're at 1290 on the price of gold. So we're right below where I thought the support was. At 1300. And, you know, I'm not that worried that, you know, we're going all the way back down to 1200. I think that even maybe just a little bit below 1300. So if I'm wrong, if we see a bigger pullback, but I don't think so, given the fact that we're not getting a rise in the dollar, oil price is now comfortably holding above $50 a barrel. We're almost at 51. We closed at 5073 today. Strong oil, uh, a weak dollar. To me, that means that gold prices are likely heading higher. Even though we're a little bit below that support, I think that people are going to buy it. I do think that, you know, 1300 is maybe the new 1200 So anything under that, I think, is going to be looked at as a, a buying opportunity. And so I think the buyers are going to come in. Now, the thing with the Fed, though, is they've been playing a game of monetary chicken, really, because the Fed keeps pretending uh, to be more and more hawkish, right? They keep testing the markets by, oh, you know, we're going to we're gonna raise rates and then, oh, we raise rates. So we're going to raise them more. We're going to shrink the balance sheet and, you know, we're data dependent. And they just kind of ignore a lot of the bad things that are happening. And they keep 
kind of pushing the envelope. And the question is, when are they going to push too far, right? Or it's like they they keep putting a straw on the camel's back, and then the camel's back doesn't break, and they figure, okay, let's put let's put another straw out there. And they want to maintain their credibility. They want to continue to keep this charade going for as long as possible. The problem is, at some point, the straw is going to be one too many. You just don't know that until you put it up there and watch the camel's knees buckle. So, you know, the Fed has put it out there, supposedly. We're going to get another hike in December. They're going to start quantitative tightening. All right, well, so far, markets haven't collapsed, right? So far, it's only been a couple of days. But let's see. I mean, the Fed is really pressing its luck. Now, again, maybe they don't care. I don't know. I've said this. Maybe they don't care because they're going to blame it all on Trump. Maybe it's a whole new ballgame. Maybe it doesn't matter to the Fed if the markets collapse. Maybe they no longer care about the wealth effect. And they're willing to allow all their hard work to just come undone. Because remember, that was the whole purpose of quantitative easing was to prop up asset prices. Well, if they start doing quantitative tightening or people expect them to do it and they're going to keep raising rates, well, they reverse the process. And now, you know, the the house of cards that they erected comes crashing down. Now, maybe they don't care, uh, but I still think they do care. They just might leave the market a little bit more room. But I think if the market starts to fall, and the Fed doesn't signal that it cares, then it's going to get out of hand. And then the Fed is going to have to fare pretty quickly because once we actually get into bear market territory, then how much further will it be? How much longer before we're starting to see the economic numbers, before we're starting to see the increase in unemployment, the drop in home prices, uh, consumer confidence, business confidence. And then, of course, there's all sorts of political pressure on the Fed to do something, do something, and you know something's going to get done. So we'll see. If uh, if this is it, if they've already put one straw too many on this camel's back. Now, where we might not see as many buyers is with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is having more volatility again today. You know, Bitcoin did get above 4,000, but it couldn't hold that level. And it's now trading at about 36.50. The low that I saw this morning so far was around 35.50. So we bounced a little bit off that low, but we're now heading south once again. I think that the support is 3,000, but we'll see if it holds it. Because if Bitcoin can't hold 3,000, I think it's going to 1,000 as quickly as it went from 5,000 to 3,000. And now you're going to see an 80% decline uh, from 5,000 to 1,000. That is a big, big drop. We'll see if uh, the buy the dip mentality can can be maintained, if the enthusiasm can be maintained uh, for Bitcoin. Um, I'm sure I'm going to run into a lot of people here at this conference that I'm at in Aspen, this cryptocurrency conference. In fact, it really reminds me of the mortgage bankers speech that I gave when I went to the conference in Nevada, Las Vegas, Nevada. I was at the Mirage Hotel. Again, if you haven't seen that video, check it out on YouTube, Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers. But there I was going into the lines then. I was you know, telling people things they didn't want to hear. But of course, everything I told them was true. And I was there to try to get people to invest in the hedge fund that was shorting subprime mortgages. And out of 3,000 people, only one invested with me. So I had very important information, very valuable information, but nobody wanted to recognize it. And I think the same thing is likely to happen here at this crypto conference. I'm basically the contrarian again, and I'm literally here to burst their bubble. And they don't want it burst. You know, I think there's a lot of greed with people who think Bitcoin is going to go to a million dollars of Bitcoin. I mean, nobody wants to get off of this train. I mean, people, let's say you got 10 Bitcoins and you think they're going to be worth $10 million. You're not selling them, right? You'd be a fool to sell them. 
And so people have, you know, mentally, they, they, they're already spending that money. They're already pricing out their, their yachts, right? So they're, no, no, I'm not going to give up on that. I'm, I'm holding these coins. So you, you've got all this greed that overwhelms. In fact, you know, I was reading this story today that supposedly is validating uh, uh, Bitcoin because ever since Jamie Dimon came out there, I've been seeing a lot more of a need within the Bitcoin community to discredit Jamie Dimon, to say bad things about some company out of London just filed. They didn't sue him. They filed some kind of regulatory complaint that he's manipulating the markets. It's fraud. I mean, come on. The market manipulation has been going on for years and it's being manipulated by the guys that got in early. Right. Who've been pumping this thing up. I mean, talk about market manipulation. It's not Jamie Dimon. It's all these guys that have been hyping up the Bitcoin ever since ever since it got started. But I've been seeing all these stories that are trying to invalidate what he said. And one of them that was out today was about some guy that bought a house with Bitcoin. Oh, it was like, oh, look, this guy buys house with Bitcoin as if to create the impression that, see, it's money. The guy bought a house with it. Now, of course, this isn't the first time I, I read a story like this a couple of years ago about some guy buying a house with Bitcoin. But of course, it's not true. And when you, I read the article about the guy who bought his house with, uh, with Bitcoin, it actually says that the seller of the house immediately converted the Bitcoins into dollars. So he didn't uh, buy his house with Bitcoins. He bought his house with dollars, right? He just sold his Bitcoins and bought his house with the profits that he generates from cashing in his Bitcoins. I mean, you can sell any asset and then use the money to buy whatever you want. That doesn't mean the house was paid for uh, in Bitcoins, that the seller accepted Bitcoins and just kept them in his digital wallet and went about his life, right? I mean, you're not going to find a house that's listed for sale for, you know, a thousand Bitcoins. And then you just give the guy that owns the house your thousand uh, bitcoins and he takes it and gives you his house and then he just goes about his life with his thousand bitcoins sitting in his digital wallet. I mean, no one's going to sell their house uh, on, on those terms. But I get these articles are coming out there to try to create this sense that people who are criticizing it are wrong. But it's the articles themselves who who are wrong. And I've already you know gotten into a couple of arguments here with people. You know about oh the you know the how how great the you know the, the technology is and the uh, you know the the blockchain and the digital ledger and I thought like, look sure yes I'll give you that and I'm, maybe one day when I buy somebody's car that my the pink slip will be uh, you know on on a blockchain somewhere and it'll be efficient or maybe the deed to my house will be on a blockchain maybe stocks will be traded that way maybe if you know maybe actual currencies maybe people will use blockchain to transport you know dollars or yen or euro or gold or whatever but i just don't think it's going to be used to 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 transfer nothing which is what i believe these cryptocurrencies are yes i can transfer nothing to you uh very easily and although in some cases now it's not even so easy for me to give you nothing but ultimately when people realize that all they're getting is nothing then they're not going to want it anymore now actually they're not getting nothing now they're getting a lottery ticket they're getting a dream they're getting to fantasize about how much money they're going to have uh, you know, I've been getting inundated. I don't know if anybody, you get this. I'm on a lot of newsletters. I've been getting emails now from newsletters trying to sell me subscriptions so I can be the next crypto millionaire. And they're talking about penny cryptos now, right? They're saying, look, Bit- Bitcoin is old, right? Because Bitcoin is going up too slow. And of course, they, they highlight in, these, in their pitches all the money that people made who bought Bitcoin years ago. Right? Oh, this guy put in 
$1,000, and now he's got 500000 They have all these stories, one after another. They name people about how much money they made, and now they're saying, I've got the next Bitcoin. I've got, hey, I've got three cryptocurrencies that are going to make you rich. Just send me some money, and I'll tell you what they are. And I'm reading through this stuff, and it's all hype after hype. It's all pure sensational nonsense appealing to people's greed, right? Yes, give me $50, and I'll tell you the, 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 the cryptocurrency that's about to skyrocket, you know, 100,000% or whatever. You can take $100, and you can turn it into, you know, 50,000 or whatever. Look, if the guy who's writing this newsletter actually knew the names of the currencies that were so cheap, that we're going to go up so much, the last thing he would do was tell you about it for 50 bucks, right? He would buy up, instead of spending money to send out this mass email, he would use that money to buy up these coins. In fact, what he's probably done is he's already bought up a supply of these coins, and now he's going to give people the name of the coins that he already owns so that when they pay him the 50 bucks to find out the names of the next uh, um, micro cap cryptos or penny cryptos that are going to make people rich when those suckers go to buy those cryptos then whoever is behind this newsletter is going to unload theirs right pump and dump but this stuff all the pump and dumpers now have been gravitating to the cryptocurrency story why because it's there it's it's greedy there's examples you can show how other people got rich and that this guy i was sitting with at the table having lunch today was trying to convince me how early this was, how this was still the ground floor. I mean, the ground floor? You think you're getting in on the ground floor buying Bitcoins at $4,000? People have already made all this money. There's all this hype going on all over the place, and you're telling me this is just the beginning? But this is what these people think. I mean, it's much closer to the end than they understand. I mean, it may have already ended. I mean, there's a good chance that 5000 was the high. We'll see. If we can hold 3000 if we can hold that and not go down, then maybe we'll go up to 10,000. Maybe there's going to be another run, and maybe that'll be the last one. But, you know, if we don't and we crack 1,000, I think there's a good chance that that's it, that we'll never see 5,000 again and that we're, we're going down. The question is, how long is it going to take for people to be thrown in the towel? And at the end of the day, and I'm going to tell everybody this at this conference, and of course, I don't know how they're going to react, but I think all these currencies are going to zero or practically zero. And the only money that's going to be made in cryptocurrencies is by the people who sell. And all the money they make is going to be from the fools who are left holding the bag. The last fools who buy, right, are going to lose all the money. Or even people who bought a couple of years ago are going to lose money if they don't sell. The only money that will be made is the people who sell. And the money that's going to be lost is from the people who buy. So the way you make money in cryptocurrencies is to sell them not buy them.